Hey, Steve. Uh, I know something you don't know. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, I know the winners of the 2020 Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability. Well, sorry to disappoint you, but so do I. Hmm. Well, so I guess that makes sense. Uh, all right. Let's start over. Hey, Steve. We know something no one else knows. That's right. We know the winners of the 2020 Ivory Prize, and we're going to announce the winners today on the show for the first time ever. Uh, excuse me, gentlemen, gentlemen. I, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but I have to tell you something. Uh, what's that, Kent? We announced the winners already. You did? What, when? Yes, we did, right before this podcast. We just had a big production online with videos, interviews, and you can find it at ivory-innovations.org. Wow. Uh, okay. So we've lost the element of surprise, uh, but there's still a lot of great stuff to talk about on today's show as we look into some of the great ideas and lessons from the 2020 Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the podcast, we're going to take an in-depth look at the results from the 2020 Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability. The winners were just announced right before this podcast. Some really great concepts and some really great progress in addressing the great affordability challenges of our time. And on the show today, we're going to talk about the prize, the winners, and some of the new developments this year. And we're thrilled to welcome back Kent Colton, president of the Colton Housing Group and senior research fellow at the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University. Kent is also the chairman of the advisory board for the Ivory Prize and led the selection committee for the prize winners. So Kent, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, uh, it was great to have you back. And uh, you know, there were a lot of great uh, and exciting developments in this year's Ivory Prize. But before we get into that, let's talk about the prize itself just as a refresher for everybody. Uh, so give us a little bit of background. Well, the Ivory Prize was started uh, last year, and it was started because we have a very serious housing challenge. And it really stems from the fact that uh, household growth is at a faster pace than housing starts. And so literally, uh, we're falling way behind in terms of the housing that's available, and that obviously impacts housing affordability. Uh, Freddie Mac just did a study uh, concluded at the end of February, February 27th, to be precise, when they announced it, where they talked about we have a $3.3 million, million housing unit shortage. Uh, and, and that gets worse every year where we fall behind by 300,000 units a year. So we've got a serious problem. Clark Ivory uh, wanted to establish with the Housing Prize something that would focus on the challenges and how we can deal with those challenges when we talk about the housing shortage and housing availability. Um, as a part of that though, what he really felt is that although we talk a lot about the problem, we love to spend our hands, you know, wringing our hands and, and talking about the difficulties that we're facing. But the reality is, is there's a lot going on in the grassroots and Clark thought there was, but said, I'm going to set up this Ivory Prize. By the way, Clark Ivory is the largest builder in Utah uh, and is the CEO of Ivory Homes. But he said, you know, I'm going to uh, 
set up this prize so we can see what's going on out there at the grassroots level and what kind of difference it is making with respect to meeting the challenges of housing affordability. And so that's why the prize was started. It was really enjoyable to talk about, you know, all the innovations that were done last year in the, in the, in the episode. But I know that from year to year, too, the, the, it's grown a lot this year, right? The, what's different in 2020 versus 2019? Well, it, it was fascinating to see how it has grown. Uh, last year, we had 126 nominations, applications for the prize. This year, for the 2020 prize, we actually had 168 applications. That's a, a full one-third increase in terms of the number of uh, applications. Uh, the other thing that we really discovered in terms of focusing on the, on the prize is that, uh, as I said before, it's, it's easy to talk about the problems, but when you look at all of these 168 innovations that are going on all around the country, you recognize that it's really important to focus on the solutions, not just the problems. So that's really the focus of the 2020 Ivory Prize. It's to focus on the solutions. Um, Another thing that's that's interesting, uh, last year when we were kind of analyzing and when we talked on the podcast, uh, we, we talked about directions or paths to try to deal with housing affordability. What you very quickly realize when you get into the middle of these kinds of challenges is there's no one silver bullet answer. Uh, one no solution fits all. Uh, but it's just a, a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity, a lot of things that are happening. Uh, one city, one state, uh, one innovation at a time. And, but there are some paths that begin to emerge, and we identified five. Uh, but this year in the Ivory Prize, another one really emerged as being very important. We can talk about it later. But it was really a lot of innovation and effort that's going on to really help renters become homeowners in a very, you know, variety of ways through different innovations and different technologies. And so we'll talk about that. So that emerged as a, a, a new path, a direction that we want to focus on. And then finally, uh, last year, we got some good uh, nominations related to the removing the regulatory barriers policy area. But this year, we really had both strong nominations from the private sector as well as the public sector as it relates to removing barriers uh, related to affordable housing. And again, we can talk about that more later, but that was something that we really noticed that was unique about 2020 versus 2019. Now, that's that's really great. And before we get into some of the those details and, and uh, some of the new ideas, let's dig into those paths a little bit, because I think that's really going to set up what follows in our discussion. So First, maybe the five paths from 2019, and then a little bit about uh, the new path for this year. Um, first of all, increasing housing construction through innovation and technology in order to build faster and to increase productivity and lower cost. Uh, a second path is to preserve and produce affordable housing in neighborhoods, building on the people and the strengths of that community. A third area is to utilize creative finance approaches to allow more people to qualify for a mortgage and to buy a house and to build more affordable rental housing. A fourth was innovative use of existing housing and land lots 
to provide greater housing opportunities to meet the nation's housing demand and to increase income for homeowners. And the fifth was to remove barriers at the local, state, and federal level, but especially at the local and the, the state level to allow more homes and apartments to be built and to reduce the, the time and cost of that building. And then the new one that I mentioned earlier is to assist renters to improve their financial position and credit scores and to help them achieve home ownership through innovation and technology. That's great. So uh, should, we, should we dive in right away and speak a little bit about the construction and design? Ab- absolutely. You know, I, I really talked about it before, but, uh, you know, if the country has a deficit of 3.3 million housing units and we're falling behind by 300,000 houses each year, we've got to find a better way to build more housing and to do it less expensively. And uh, each year, the greatest number of applications or nominations that we've received for the Ivory Prize over the last two years has really focused on new creative ways uh, to build more effectively. Um, Last year, our winner was uh, a multifamily company uh, in California, they're called Factory OS, and they build, you know, multifamily housing. Uh, in fact, we, when we chose the nomination, or the, uh, when we met to judge who would be the winners this year, uh, we actually went to the facility at Factory OS. We had a, a tour of their factory and uh, looked at all the creative things that they're doing. Uh, and, and it was worthwhile to see what's happening on the multifamily side. And uh, another one of our top 10 finalists this year uh, was another multifamily uh, producer, uh, Full Stack Modular, and they're in New York City. Uh, they built a complex in, uh, in Brooklyn with 33 stories and 363 units. It's the tallest modular building in the world. Uh, and have really shown that uh, building factory-built housing can really be less expensive and be produced quicker. This year, though, our Ivory Prize winner is a company called Integra. Um, and, and they're primarily single family. They're also in California. Um, they've manufactured uh, 390 ha- houses over the course of, uh, of their existence, but they're really ramping up. Uh, they have a factory in Ripon, California, where they can build 500 units a year. But now they're building this year a new factory in Modesto, California, and they will, and this should be coming online uh, uh, later on, really within the next month or two, April 2020, with the capacity to build 3,500 units per year. And, uh, and then they're looking to build another factory in Southern California by the end of 2020. So they're doing a lot of interesting creative things with respect to building single family homes in a factory. And, uh, you know, maybe we could take a minute and just talk about that for a second. Any thoughts or questions that you have? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really amazing. And, and I would like to understand a little bit better you know, how that works, what the homes look like, and, and how they fit into the, uh, the single family housing stock and fit into neighborhoods. So they look like just any other home. <laughs> uh, you know, it used to be that we'd talk about modular housing and cookie cutter, and they looked differently. Uh, Integra 
uh, has the capacity because now they have the technology, they have the computer modeling that any builder can basically bring them their plans and they can take those and put them into their system and then basically factory build that house. Uh, and, and what they do is they assemble it into parts and then, and then that house gets taken to usually by a truck, it can go on a train, but usually by a truck to, to that site and, and it is assembled. And whereas it would take, you know, three months, six months, oftentimes more than that to build a single family house, they'll assemble that house uh, on site in four or five days and they will have spent uh, significantly less time than normal to build that house in the factory. We're talking about weeks or just a month or two as opposed to three months or six months in terms of doing that. And yet when that house is assembled, it really is a very uh, effective house. It's, it's sort of like, you know, if we were trying to build iPhones by hand on the site, we'd never be able to do it. But the reality is, is you can build them, a machine can help to build them. And here in, in the factory, they can be built and they're very precision and there's a lot of quality control that goes on. And so it looks like any other house, but it in fact is built quicker and, and uh, potentially over time, as we begin to do more and more of this, to be less costly, not just because it's quicker, but because it's also more efficient in terms of building the house. And I would imagine uh, maybe lower cost of ownership over time. And, and, and that's the hope. That's the hope over time. Now, you have to get the house from the factory to the site. And of course, the builder still has to buy the land and go through the development process and do all of that. That's a lot of what, you know, takes a lot of time to do a single family house in the United States. But, but the reality is if you can find a factory and, and build a place, and that's where California is doing a lot of this because they do have a, a fair bit of production going on, far less than what they need, but, but they do have that. So you can, if you can get the house to the factory in about a 500-mile radius, uh, it works well. Uh, and, and, and so that's the kind of constraint, uh, maybe even preferably... Uh, three to 400 mile, but, but up to 500 mile works pretty well in terms of the cost as far as being able to get that house there and to, and to make it uh, available. So it does uh, make me wonder also, uh, and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, uh, but what about uh, you know, zoning, building codes and all, and all of that? Uh, they've, they've managed to uh, have no issues there? Uh, no, it's actually a big problem, <laughs> uh, and and you really raise a very important issue. We'll get to it in more detail later when we talk about trying to remove the regulatory barriers in terms of zoning and permitting and all of that. Um, but but some communities are beginning to realize that uh, if they have a shortage, and and many communities around the country. Uh, definitely have a shortage in terms of housing and therefore a serious problem, both in terms of availability and affordability as far as uh, housing, that, that they can figure out ways to uh, do the permitting process. And, and, once, and, and the one benefit, if it's a manufactured house, once they've 
done the permitting, they've checked it out, they've made sure that it's uh, uh, according to building code, then you're going to have uh, a similar houses that are going up. So therefore, you can streamline that process of approvals, whether it's a permit or whether it's on-site approvals. Uh, but you still have to go through that process. And quite frankly, in some communities, they haven't done what they need to do to make that available. So this kind of factory-built housing is not available and will not be an option because you do have to match uh, the development process along with the permitting and approval process. And that's one of the things that we're going to have to learn as a country uh, if we want to build more and more houses uh, more effectively and more efficiently. That's one of the things that I think is really great about these conversations that we have is uh, you've got these five, now six categories, and they, but they end up kind of working together. But then also at the end of the day, you know, you, you actually have successful solutions to point to and to think that Full Stack would have built a 33-story building in Brooklyn and in Take Rose, cranking out houses and putting them out is, is really um, great success stories. Yeah, it, it is. And, and, uh, and, and that's what, what's been fun about the Ivory Prize is it really focuses on solutions. <laughs> We've got a lot of problems and, and they're not going to go away. Uh, with just one innovation here, another act of creativity there. But over time, uh, the paths and the directions are there. I'll, I'll just mention one more in this area of building houses faster. And I think this really relates to homelessness. It relates to the low-income side of the market. Uh, one of our top 10 finalists this year, is a, it's a nonprofit based in San Francisco called New Story Charity. And it relates a little bit back to what you were just talking about in terms of building codes and approvals. Um, they, they are around the world in terms of trying to grapple with homelessness and build communities for homeless. Um, and, and what they've done is they've partnered with a company called Icon, which uses a 3D printer. And, and People say, well, wait a minute, are they printing? Are these paper mache houses or something like that? No, no. This, this, they're using concrete. In essence, they're, they're, they're pouring concrete through the 3D printer, if you will, to you know, print one wall at a time, one portion of the wall, stack it up, et cetera, et cetera. It's fascinating to, to see how this printer works. I mean, you're talking about 11-foot high printer, which weighs 3,800 pounds which relies on robotics, uh, streams of pliable concrete material that oozes out uh, from the printer and and then basically ripples that that stack and and they can do that. And and because building codes are different in Mexico than they are in the United States, they said, we're going to start our project to build houses for the homeless in Mexico because we can get the approval so much quickly. But we'll use U.S. building code standards. And, and so, you know, New Story Charity has done that in Mexico and build a, a community which now is uh, up and operating in, in Mexico. And it, it, it's working. But now Icon, who is the company, has been able to get approvals in, uh, in northeast Austin, Texas, and they're building uh, a community for the homeless there. Uh, working with the local community and kind of you could prove that you could do it in Mexico. And now that technology is, is coming to Austin, Texas and is providing uh, 
something that I think over time can really make a difference in terms of this new 3D technology. Yeah, that is really interesting, uh, really fantastic. And, you know, w- one of the things that, um, you know, I'm sure in, in many of our life experiences, uh, traveling around different parts of the country and different parts of the world is you just see all the different uh, ways that things are built. And, and concrete is used in a lot of places for homes. And, and uh, the ability to uh, 3D print that and, and get stuff up is, is really great. Yeah, it and and people don't quite understand or have the concept, but it but it really is. I mean, these these houses that are built using this 3D printer, uh, you know, they they last like other houses. I mean, clearly, we're talking about a 40, 50 year longer lifespan in terms of these these houses that are being built using the 3D printer. And certainly impacting lives as uh, as we look at. Um, providing uh, housing for the homeless and uh, moving them off the streets. So that's fantastic. All these tangible things in the construction and development. Um, finance is another category. Uh, maybe we can dive into that. A- absolutely. One of the, you know, the things that's interesting about finance is there are a lot of interesting platforms that people have developed. And when I say platform, I'm talking about a computer platform that, that then allows, um, you know, it not only applies to one person, but it applies elsewhere. And then you can sort of take this and go nationwide. Uh, the, the, the winner of the Ivory Prize uh, in, in finance this year is a company called Rhino. Rhino's located in New York City, uh, but they operate in all 50 states. And, and getting back to the issue of renters, because this is an illustration of, of a company that's doing something to help renters to be able to build equity and to improve their situation so that they can be able to uh, you know, afford a house to buy eventually. Uh, Reiner's partners with building owners and managers, multifamily building owners and managers, to offer a low-cost insurance, which is an alternative to a cash security deposit. If anybody out there has ever rented a house, you know you have to put down a security deposit. And, and that security project can sometimes be as much as, you know, three months' rent, etc. but it's not an insignificant amount of dollars that you have to come up with. For some renters, uh, especially those that are, uh, uh, have less income, coming up with that security de- deposit can be a burden. Uh, Rhino focuses on that issue of housing affordability and accessibility by addressing the burden of upfront move-in costs, and in this case, especially the security deposit. So instead of paying that lump sum, you pay an insurance payment. And for example, in New York City, for a 3000 per month apartment, that's somewhere between four to seven dollars a month, uh, utilizing Rhino, and uh, and it really does provide an alternative for tenants that then allow them to have greater flexibility in terms of the upfront costs, but also to be able to uh, keep that equity to use it for other things that they need to do, whether it's the essentials of life or whether it's accumulating a down payment. So th- that is our. Our, our winner on the finance area, and I, I think it's fascinating. But there were, you know, other kinds of uh, things that were in our top ten and the top twenty-five finalists, uh, which are interesting, related to you know innovations along the long ways. Uh, 
there's a company out there called Easy Knock, uh, which their financial services, they were one of our top 25 finalists. Uh, they're trying to make a home a more liquid asset. So Easy Knock has what they call a sell and stay product, which provides homeownerships with access to their home equity before they move. In other words, somebody wants to move. They have to move. They want to buy another house, but they can't get their equity out until they sell theirs. Easy Knock will actually come up and help provide equity, if you will, so that they can use that equity to go ahead and uh, buy another house. And in turn, they will be able to eventually sell that and then pay back Easy Knock from, uh, from what they do to help in that. So that's just a, another illustration uh, of, of the kinds of things that are going on in the in the finance area. We also had uh, two of our top 25 finalists this year who are what we call crowdfunding. Uh, Home Fund It and another one called Small Change. Uh, Home Fund It is in Baltimore, Maryland. Small Change is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But in essence, they're what is oftentimes referred to as a crowdfunding platform where they can get uh, friends, relatives, other people that want to help them put down the down payment for their house that will uh, will help to do that through this uh, platform that exists out there. And, uh, and they've been successful in terms of uh, helping people develop the money or get the money that they need to, to have a down payment. So again, lots of interesting things going on out there in terms of innovations related to finance. And, um, and I think that the, the winner, Rhino, just to think about the, the change in cash flow for an individual household when they think about putting down a deposit that where the rent is, as you said, $3,000 a month and the, and the deposit may be more than one month, maybe two to three months. Uh, and they go from, from that multiple of $3,000 down to four to $7 a month, just truly changes that household situation. Absolutely. It really can make a difference. And, uh, and especially when you're talking about somebody at the lower end of the scale in terms of what they're you know, when they're trying to rent a place or trying to buy an affordable house. So Kent, another one of the six paths that you talked about was uh, preserving and producing affordable housing, you know, building on the strengths of the neighborhoods. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, what I want to do is just dive in and talk about uh, one of our top 10 winners. And, and it's a unique kind of neighborhood uh, because it's a mobile home neighborhood community. Uh, what Rock USA, and they're located in Concord, New Hampshire, does, um, and they're, as I said, one of our top 10 Ivory Prize finalists uh, this year, is they convert private mobile home parks to resident owner communities. ROC is Rock, <laughs> and that means a resident owner community, and they have... Uh, 256 resident-owned communities with 17,000 manufactured homes that are around the country. They're in 16 states nationwide now, and they plan over time to go to 50 states nationwide. And, and they are dealing with people who are at the lower income of the income spectrum, who have been renting in a mobile home, and they help the people in that community, if you will, in essence, buy out the owners of those mobile home parks. Uh, in doing that, they're able to kind of fix their rents uh, so that, yes, they, they may have to pay higher 
costs as homeowners to pay, you know, additional costs that come to them in terms of that uh, uh, mobile home community. But but they don't have to be at the mercy, if you will, of that owner of that mobile home park. And then they're able to become owners in a co-op form and then to be able to continue to live and improve that community and to have some impact on the life that they live. And, uh, and Rock USA has, in essence, sort of started with the first resident-owned community in New Hampshire, and they've now built this network, if you will, and they have a series of affiliates. They have nine network affiliates around the country, which will help people, and they have the mechanism, the means, they help provide the financing to do that, so that they, in essence, can form a co-op, and then that co-op can buy these mobile home parks and make low-income housing available for the owners of those mobile home parks, and they become the homeowners as opposed to the renters at the mercy of the people who own those parks. A fascinating effort that they're doing and, and just doing a really great job. And uh, just had a conversation with a gentleman by the name of Paul Bradley, who is the one who kind of runs Rock USA. And, and uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, they're grappling right now uh, with financing, if you will, because these are people that may not have the ability to make their payments, but they're figuring out that with the coronavirus, how do you work out that financing? And, and these people would have been at the mercy, if you will, of whatever was happening, but now they have a network with the capacity to deal with banks and to deal with people to grapple with their, uh, with their situation. And, and they're going to make it through this. I mean, they have a scenario, you know, that, that will take them to the fall if they need to, in order to provide the support for these uh, 256 resident owned communities, these rocks that are out there. And, uh, Freddie Mac uh, just did a study and they talked about rocks are one of the few sources of unsubsidized, naturally occurring, affordable housing in the country, not subject to market-based rent increases. So I, I think that's a fascinating effort and innovation, which is underway, which really does make a difference at the grassroots level uh, to help homeownership for those who need it the most. Uh, it it truly is, and and you know one of the things that that uh, model uh, demonstrates to me as well is you know they've been they've been around uh, doing this for quite some time, continuing to build you know one community at a time, one success at a time, and it just you know, to me really demonstrates how important uh, that consistency is and that uh, you know dedication to being in this for the long haul. Absolutely. So anyway, we, we were delighted to have them in our top 10 this year. And, uh, and they're a perfect illustration of that third category. Kent, you also added a new category this year, uh, more about helping renters achieve home ownership. So let's get into that a little bit. Uh, th- this was interesting because uh, we found a number of companies that are trying to grapple with that. Rhino, who we just talked about, who uh, was our winner in finance, obviously does that when they're talking about eliminating costly security deposits. Uh, another top 10 finalist is, is by the name of Diggs. Diggs, they're located in Chicago, and they've got an a automated platform that educates users on the home buying process and helps potential homeowners save to purchase their first home. Uh, it, it has an automated way. We, you know, we've always talked about, you know, let's have 
for renters, uh, counseling, if you will, to help them become homeowners. This is kind of uh, computer-aided counseling uh, to help them in the home buying process through digs. And it, it really has made a difference in terms of uh, not only helping them with uh, understanding what needs to be done to become a homeowner and to grapple with things like appraisals and titles and mortgages, but, but also to help them uh, set goals in terms of the amount of money that they want to do and then to save. And eventually, you know, with the savings that they, that they make to be able to put up a down payment. So digs is a, a, an interesting illustration of that. Uh, another one of our top 25 finalists is a, a company called Till. Uh, and, and they're located in, in Alexandria, Virginia, and they have a platform that transforms a renter's ability to pay, stay, and thrive in their home by using real-time data to predict a renter's ability to pay rent and develop personalized lease structures and payment solutions to proactively address the renter's needs, and then they're able to improve their credit, and as they improve their credit, they're able to eventually qualify to become a uh, a homeowner and and really improve renters entire financial landscape as they go forward. And then just finally one over quickly is uh is Susu, E S U S U. Uh they're located in New York City and they offer a rental data reporting service that includes rent as a factor of the credit scores. And and it's interesting because less than 1% of credit reports include rent. Yet for many people, that's their largest and most consistent payment that they're making. But they get no credit by making their rental payments. Asusu has partnered with Equifax Credit Reporting Services, and, and they've been able to, in essence, uh, add rental payments to the credit score so that the renter is able to display uh, their ability to be able to make payments as a homeowner by showing that they have a great rental payment track record. And they're kind of paving the way, if you will. They're one of our top 10 finalists, Asusu. Uh, they're paving the way, if you will, uh, to help renters really be able, because eventually I think we'll see rent as a key part of all credit reports. But, but they're helping to make that happen so that renters can take advantage of that, their largest regular monthly payment that they're usually making in order to enhance their credit. So those are just some of the things that are going on in that category that uh, were really interesting to see all the innovation and creativity, creativity, the solutions, if you will, that are underway. Yeah, it's interesting because sometimes it, you know of these things and you know that somebody should get credit for the biggest payment that they make each month and being regular and consistent in that. And, and it's great to see, you know, firms like Yasusu go out there and actually make it happen, that that what should be obviously happening will now happen. So that's just fantastic. You know, moving on to another category, as, as you've talked um, at the beginning and earlier on about the shortage of housing that we have and how it continues to get worse. Um, I, you have a category where you give um, awards in, for people making progress there as well, right? Right. This is really one of the paths that, uh, that we have identified by virtue of the Ivory Pride process, which really helps people to be able to survive. Uh, if we have a shortage of housing, then that means we have to do a better job using our existing housing to house more people. Uh, or 
we have to think about creative ways to use the lots or the land that we have so that we can make more housing available. And, uh, and, and in this category, just a, a couple of illustrations. Uh, the, the, one of the innovations was a company called Star City. They're located in San Francisco. Uh, they own, operate, and advocate, if you will, for co-living communities. These are communities where you've got single folks who need a place to live. They want to live in a city like San Francisco, but they can't afford it. But here they can, with Star City, uh, they have an opportunity to have a bedroom and a bathroom, which is private, but then co-living, uh, sharing, if you will, related to kitchens, living room space, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and they've had a lot of success. And there are a number of these co-living facilities which are popping up all around the country. Again, creative illustrations of what's going on. Uh, we talked about one of our winners last year, Nesterly, but they still continue to thrive. They were actually one of our finalists, if you will, in the top 25 category. Uh, but they're matching, if you will, senior citizens who own houses with students living in Boston. Um, and and it's, it's a great success because students need a place to live. Seniors are overhoused, if you will, but they want to stay in that overhousing but they have rooms that they can make available to students. And, and that gives them extra income so that they can continue to age in place in their house, gives the students a place to live, but it also provides, especially for the senior citizens' company, um, if they're living alone or if they're just a couple that, that's, that's living there. So Nesterly has been a wonderful uh, product, and they continue to expand um, and then, and then something that we really focused on last year, which continues to come up among uh, the people that are applying for the uh, Ivory Prize, is taking advantage of lots through something which is referred to as accessory dwelling units, ADUs, where in essence, somebody has a lot, but they can get the ability or the approval, if you will, to build a smaller house, maybe in this case, a, a thousand square foot house. Which, which is a, a room for a couple or, or an in-law or somebody else. Uh, but they provide, in essence, a house for an additional household because we have, obviously, a shortage in terms of uh, houses for the extra number of households that are being formed and the accessory dwelling units. And we, we had a couple of uh, our top 25 uh, finalists uh, Casita Coalition in San Francisco or Boston ADU Financing. Uh, Boston ADU Financing, for example, provides gap funding. Uh, this is the city of Boston providing gap funding for those who are approved for an ADU through a zero interest loan. Uh, and it will help people renovate their house so they become ADU compatible so that they can go ahead and add that uh, accessory dwelling unit. And so this is the city of Boston helping to expand uh, housing availability uh, through focusing on the better use of that lot through an accessory dwelling unit. So lots of interesting things happening in that fifth path, if you will. No, that's really great. You know, I, I've certainly you know, been aware of uh, different localities looking at ADUs, uh, zoning changes to support them, but I had not heard of uh, localities actually putting dollars behind it. So that's really great. Yeah, that's that's the city of Boston, and and we we were excited to see that happening, and and uh, congratulate them on doing that. All right. So, and I think that takes us to our sixth path, 
which would be uh, you know, local regulatory reform. Uh, so what uh, what are you seeing there? You mentioned a couple of really high profile cases, I think. Yeah, th- this this is this was uh, I think one of the really positive things about the 2020 Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability. Uh, last year we had some great uh, applications, but this year we had some real stars, um, and they were both in the public sector in terms of doing some very creative, technologically oriented solutions having to do with uh, city planning for ADUs. And then secondly, we have, you know, two public organizations, uh, the city of Minneapolis and the state of Oregon that have done some very creative zoning things. And in fact, we therefore realized that we wanted to make a private sector winner of the Ivory Prize. uh, And that is a company that I'll explain in just a minute called Symbium. But we also decided that uh, because of, of the success in this area, that we needed to add actually another category, if you will, of, of winners uh, related to that. So this year we've established the Public Sector Outstanding Achievement Award, which we're giving to the city of Minneapolis and the state of Oregon for changes which they have made related to zoning and in essence doing away with single family zoning. So let me first talk about Symbian and then, then talk a little bit about Minneapolis and, uh, and uh, the state of Oregon in terms of what they've done, because I think this is especially exciting. Uh, Symbian is the winner of the Ivory Prize for the private sector and for the work that they're doing related to um, creative work if you will, to deal with something we just talked about in a minute ago, ADUs. What they've done, and and they've got some really bright technology folks (laughs) uh, coming out of Stanford, if you will, uh, to develop a computer platform that actually mechanizes the rules and regulations of a planning code. Uh, It's a computational law platform really can be used to help homeowners, design professionals, and planners determine if an accessory dwelling unit is allowed on a property and whether they meet the the city requirements. And uh, this is fascinating because they've, in essence, automated the planning codes for a number of cities in California. They partnered with those cities. And in essence, when they enter that planning code, then instead of taking weeks or months to decide whether or not a particular parcel can qualify for an ADU. They both got the property in that jurisdiction as well as the uh, planning codes in that jurisdiction. And they can almost instantaneously tell, tell you whether or not that parcel qualifies or what, or what they're going to have to do to qualify in terms of how they're going to to, to locate that. And so, you know, once you've got that system in place, you can perform region-wide searches, searching across a jurisdiction for a parcel where an ADU would be allowed. Uh, you can identify, you know, what has to happen. Uh, you know, if you, if you were to make a regulatory change, instead of having a five-foot set, a 10-foot setback, allow a 10-foot, a five-foot setback, um, then you could have X number of more ADUs that would qualify. Uh, you can talk about, if you will, 
because of uh, uh, the technology doing the analysis now, uh, a greater turnaround in the application process and greater approval process and removing the bottlenecks for processing. So it's a fascinating technology, uh, which is just beginning to emerge. And they've really developed a partnerships uh, right now with San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Jose, and San Mateo. They'll pay a, an annual subscription fee. And then Symbian will basically fold their planning code rules into their platform in a matter of weeks. And, and then once it's mechanized, the approval rate for ADUs has increased significantly because of it. So it's a great new technology where you're seeing technology make a difference to remove regulatory barriers. So that's fascinating. Uh, and that's, that's Symbian. Yeah, and it seems like that has uh, implications uh, maybe over time beyond just uh, the ADU space. Absolutely. You're just right on target there. I mean, once you've done it for planning codes, then you can do it for all kinds of things to help in that approval process. Uh, You certainly can do it for permitting. You can certainly do it for uh, building codes uh, because the technology can grapple with uh, complex issues very quickly. Uh, The folks that have developed this come from a, the artificial intelligence background. <laughs> and they really are able to, you know, to, to use that technology in a way that can make a difference as far as removing regulatory barriers. So uh, we just couldn't resist you know, awarding them as a private sector person, that, uh, company that's really make a difference with respect to the regulatory barrier space. Uh, moving on, uh, the other area that's really interesting is uh, zoning. In, in 2019, and, and they both were nominated for the Ivory Prize, uh, we had two, both a state and a city, that made, I, I think, a, a major step forward with respect to grappling with removing regulatory barriers, where in essence, both of them did away with single-family zoning. Uh, Minneapolis did it as a part of a long-term planning process. It was Uh, enacted and passed by their city council at the end of uh, 2019. And and now they're in the process of implementing it because, you know, you do have to implement this over time. But in essence, what they're saying is in in every place of Minneapolis, you no longer can, can just have single family zoning. They've opened the door for duplexes and triplexes throughout the city of Minneapolis. Uh, and and it's it's huge because in essence, uh, and it'll take time for this to happen. But you could triple the number of houses that are available by having triplexes instead of single-family zoning. Now that's again, that's not going to happen. You're not going to see communities change overnight. But they've opened the door uh, to grapple with this. The other one that's interested is the state of Oregon. A lot of people don't realize this, but but states have the authority to in essence overrule local zoning codes because the local community gets their ability and and you know to set zoning from the state the state kind of specifies what the rules are and what happened in Oregon and and this came from sort of a fascinating coalition that was built uh, throughout the state and same thing happened with the coalition in Minneapolis but in essence they said that for any community over between 10,000 and 25,000, 
they did away that with single family zoning and then they at least have to allow duplexes. And then for any community over 25,000, they can have duplexes, they can have triplexes, they can have fourplexes, and they can have row housing and uh, cottage clusters, if you will, um, as a part of their, their zoning in that community. So they've really opened up for all the communities, especially those over 25,000 in population, with doing away with single family and making it possible to, uh, to have duplexes, triplexes, or fourplexes. Uh, in terms of what's happening. And so the state of Oregon's made a major state and that was passed by the state legislature and signed into law by the, by the, uh, the governor. And uh, just, I think an important step forward. Now, again, it's gonna take several years to implement that, but, but this is huge and I think provides a great example overall. So the question you, you need to ask is, how could that possibly happen with all of these not-in-my-backyard folks out there? Yeah, so, so that, I mean, two really great examples of, of local, you know, state and local uh, innovation. So how did, uh, how did both of those come about? Uh, that's a great question because uh, there's just a lot of activity out there to resist changing zoning laws and especially to, quote, do away with uh, single-family zoning. And uh, you've probably heard the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. And that's a, that's a common thing in communities throughout the country. Now, there is a growing recognition that we've got a serious housing problem. So groups on the other side called YIMBYs, <laughs> yes, in my backyard, have begun to emerge. What happened both in Minneapolis and in uh, the state of Oregon is, is people came together um, and, and developed common ground in terms of recognizing that they've got a serious problem with respect to a housing shortage and therefore housing affordability issues, uh, which are not going to be solved by the normal doing business the same way. And, and so what they got the building community, the home builders, the real estate builders, the banks, the, the financial institutions that oftentimes support housing to come together with environmental groups who said, look, if we have greater density, that's good for the environment. Uh, if we allow greater density and can build greater units closer to mass transit, uh, that's good as far as not needing as, uh, uh, as many cars and, and highways and so forth and so on. Um, and, and in this case, both areas, the civil rights community. Uh, to be perfectly candid, Single-family zoning is probably one of the most discriminatory things that we do in this country. By virtue of saying that you've got to have a single-family zoning, and in some cases, you can only build one house per acre or one house per every two or three acres, you make it impossible for uh, lower-income people to live in that community. And, and oftentimes, some of those people can be people of color. And, and it really, therefore, is a civil rights issue. And so the civil rights community joined in in Minneapolis and in Oregon to help pass this legislation. And, and that's really sort of a new coalition, new ways of working together to achieve common ground, to remove regulatory barriers. Um, and I, I think it's a kind of a landmark beginning and something that the Ivory Prize um, judges clearly wanted to recognize. 
So Kent, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the judges, and with so many uh, fantastic ideas to choose from, how did you uh, how did you ever make a decision? <laughs> Was it just the deadline coming up against you? Or? It it it's tough. It's it's tough, and uh, it was not easy. We we have a great uh, advisory board, and the advisory board is uh, uh, the judges, the judging committee. Uh, Clark Ivory is a member of it. Uh, uh, Carol Galanti, uh, former FHA commissioner and uh, uh, a professor now at Berkeley. Uh, Chris Herbert, the managing director of the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard. Uh, Lori Goodman, who's the director of Housing Finance Policy Center uh, and vice president at the uh, Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. Natalie Goschnauer, who is uh, the director of the Kem C. Gardner Policy Institute uh, at the University of Utah. John McManus, uh, vice president of Builder Magazine, uh, Hanley Wood. and then uh, Ryan Smith, who's uh, at Washington State University and a director and professor of the School in Design and Construction, make up the advisory board along with myself. And, uh, and, and we, we worked hard. We also had, uh, in the Ivory Prize process, has, it's, it's, it's tied to a class at the University of Utah. And the students get very much involved in that. And, and people who are hired as assistants to, in essence, uh, go out and, and work with the nominations and to help encourage people to, uh, to apply or to self-nominate uh, for the Ivory Prize. And, and then they help to assemble and gather and put that information in a format that then the judges are able to sift through that, first choosing the top 25, then choosing the top 10, and then finally choosing the winners of the Ivory Prize. And uh, it, it's a great group. I think all of us uh, got into this and didn't know what we were getting into and realized that there just is this amazing amount of innovation that's going on out there. A lot of creativity, one step at a time. No silver bullet solutions, as I said before. Uh, led by Clark Ivory, who is very focused on let's, let's, let's talk about solutions. What, and then let's talk about those solutions that can be scaled so that other people can adopt them and use them. And, and that's what's interesting about a lot of these technology solutions. It's, they, can be, they can be a pattern for the future. Uh, and, and so with that in mind, we just sort of sit down and make it happen. And it's been great. All right. Well, and before we wrap up, then we should, uh, let's just run through the winners by, the, uh, by category one last time, all in one place. And then uh... We'll take a quick look at what's coming in the future. Okay, so uh, for the judging, we are in three categories. One is construction and design, the second is finance, and the third is regulatory. And uh, the winner in the area of construction and design was in Tecra in California. Um, in the finance category, we talked about Rhino in New York City. And they were the winner in that category. And then the winner from the private sector in the regu- removing the regulatory barriers policy category is Symbian uh, with their platform to, to look at planning codes. And then we established a new category, which we're very excited about, which is the Public Sector Outstanding Achievement Award. And the winners in that were the city of Minneapolis, 
and the state of Oregon for their outstanding achievement in breaking down the barriers uh, related to affordable housing through significant zoning changes. Certainly um, worthy recipients of, of the prize, uh, but certainly it's been great talking to you today, Kent, and hearing a broad range of applicants and uh, finalists and just the incredible um, things that they're doing in the market. So uh, uh, obviously, um, Park Ivory making this happen, the whole advisory board for the work that they're doing, um, and the recipients uh, and applicants, uh, just great work that's being done all around. And thank you, Kat, for, for being here with us today and sharing the stories that go behind a bunch of this. It, 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 it's, a, it's a delight. And, and I do have to sort of end, and you, you mentioned it already, but Clark Ivory, just to sort of make this happen, it's, it's amazing. And as we began to grapple with the coronavirus, uh, you know, and, and doing this announcement uh, electronically as opposed to face-to-face in terms of who the winners are, you know, Clark just says, you know what, in this environment, we're going to make it work. We just have to focus on adapting, innovating, and solutions. And we will indeed be able to make a difference over time. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.